All rise. The Sports Court of Public Opinion we call Foul Play-By-Play is now in session. The dishonorable Anthony Barriano presiding over this podcast, providing play-by-play and color commentary on foul play in sports, on courts, and in them. The attorney of record and my co-host is Michael Haas of McClarty and Haas Law in Glendive, Montana. If you're a listener in Montana in need of a defense attorney, don't hesitate to call Mike at 406-377-2654. How's work, Mike? Work is all right. My body feels miserable. It was 107 degrees yesterday, Woo. and I found out again that alcohol is not a good substitute for water when your body's dehydrated. <laughs> oh, man. that's uh, Yeah, that's not the mistake you want to make on a 170-degree day is be outside and drinking. Speaking of mistakes, let's get into the uh, headlines for this week. Uh, there's a lot of university-related scandals out there again. After 19-year-old Maryland offensive lineman Jordan McNair died of an apparent heat stroke from performing 110-yard sprints, according to ESPN, the university placed head coach DJ Durkin and strength and conditioning coach Rick Court, along with some trainers, on leave while it investigates whether the staff was negligent in the death. The McNairs have also hired an attorney who says a lawsuit is likely and Durkin should be fired. Uh, ESPN conducted its own investigation, speaking to two current Maryland football players, former players, and football staffers, and multiple people close to the program. Here's what they shared about the football culture under Durkin and Court. This coaching environment is based on fear and intimidation. Uh, Court has been known to throw small weights and other objects uh, in the players' directions when he was angry with them. Belittling and humiliation and embarrassment were common. One player who coaches wanted to lose weight, was forced to eat candy bars while watching teammates work out. Uh, Extreme verbal abuse of players occurs often at Maryland. Uh, One player was belittled verbally after passing out during a drill. And coaches have endorsed unhealthy eating habits and used feud punitively. One player said he was forced to eat until he threw up, while the coach sat there and watched him until he threw up. Durkin and Court's coaching careers are certainly in jeopardy, but couldn't they be charged with manslaughter at the very least, Mike, or is this just a wrongful death civil lawsuit? You know, I don't think the state would bring criminal charges against them, uh, especially manslaughter. I think it would be tough, even uh, involuntary manslaughter, for them to uh, make a case of that. Um, I mean, there are other... There are other crimes you could maybe charge them with, like negligent endangerment or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any actual criminal charges will be filed. This will just be fought out in the civil courts where I think it should be. Um, but I'd also like to comment, too, God, I'm glad I was a terrible athlete. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, these guys just sound like pricks to the first degree. Well, how sad is it that, uh, you know, not being paid is it's getting worse than just not being paid to uh, make billions of dollars that's shared amongst, you know, coaches who make millions of dollars. Uh, it's well, just... no, and it's, I was looking at some of the images of the coach of Maryland, uh, you know, and the players and stuff. I don't know how you don't call it anything but slavery when you're talking about the way these kids are used. Um, and abused and apparently think... by their, uh, according to their, uh, training regiments. Yeah. And I think skin color comes into it as well. I mean, these athletes are just, I mean, I'll say to get, they're abused. I mean, that's what they are. Well, uh, I mean, and throughout sports, it's going to be, you know, at the, at the top of the totem pole, I guess, technically the bottom of the totem pole is the most important people, but it's going to be white people. You know, there aren't too many black coaches in uh, the NFL ranks, let alone the college ranks. There certainly aren't any black owners or, you know, too many minority owners of sports teams. Uh, there aren't too many, uh, 
black executives or even uh, administrators at universities, I'd imagine. I, I would say probably most, most athletic directors are probably white. So um, this is obviously uh, – this this culture permeates throughout uh, not just the team but throughout the athletic organizations and athletic departments at colleges as well. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think the McNair family's attorneys are going to have a pretty easy lawsuit um, – I mean, just the stuff that witnesses are saying happens. I mean, they've got this mysterious hour where the kid was already, you know, going through. I'm not a doctor. Right. So I'm not going to pretend to understand how your body shuts down when it gets too hot. But apparently he was having like a seizure at five o'clock and 911 wasn't called until close to six. Yep. And you've got witnesses saying that the head football trainer yelled, drag his ass across the field. I, yeah, like when I he couldn't that. even walk. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, I think a wrongful death suit would be pretty uh, pretty easy to make, especially even if you can't say the coaches or training staff was acting recklessly or carelessly. I mean, they sure as hell were negligent yeah. um, in this kid's death. Does indifference um, qualify as negligence? I mean, just you know, not caring for the man's the poor man's life. Uh, I mean, well, and that that would make it rise more than just negligence. Then, then you're looking at like reckless um, behavior if you just. I mean, you know the possible outcome. I mean, which if it's that hot and a kid is having a seizure, you know something probably is up. And if you just don't care or do anything, I mean, that rises above negligence. Yeah, and I think uh, I heard today uh, someone was talking about how um, just being uh, oh, it was their attorney. It was the uh, McNair's attorney talking about how these coaches, you know, they're not educated as to you know what to do when heat stroke occurs. Like uh, obviously. Um, I, I had heat stroke once as a kid and I got taken off the field right away. Cause I was, you know, I, I think I collapsed at second base one time and just, you know, my body just went out from under me and I fell on the ground. And the next thing I knew I was getting water fluids and, you know, a cold towel around my neck in the dugout. And I don't really remember how I got off the field. Um, but, uh, yeah, if the kid's having a seizure as reported, um, and the ambulance isn't called for an hour until after he, he, you know, finishes with the seizure. Uh, I'd say that there's, I would say that there's gotta be criminal charges that could be brought in this instance, but, um, well, and I don't, I don't understand how Maryland's football program. I mean, what's the, where were the trainers or the medical staff? I mean, well, they're all on leave well, now. <laughs> well, yeah, now I, I know that. But, I mean, when I'd watch uh, football practices for the Montana State Bobcats, I mean, they had a ton of trainers around, you know, right. for issues like this. So I don't understand what kind of a program they're running where they're – I. It just doesn't make sense. I well, mean, this uh, – The report by ESPN indicated that uh, court kind of – one of the trainers wasn't really uh, one of the uh, – guys in on it right away he he was referred to as meek uh by one of the uh maryland players who was uh, uh inter- interviewed by espn and uh kind of just went along with what the superiors expected of him the ones on the bottom of the hierarchy are going to do as they're told in order to climb up the hierarchy i think that's kind of what's happened here is you know good people do bad things when it comes down to their livelihood and their livelihood is keeping their job and growing in that job. And I think in this instance, it might cost them their job probably will. Oh, oh yeah. I think without a doubt it will cost them their jobs. And I can understand um, 
I mean, they use that phrase, you know, tough love or whatever when it comes to coaching. And I mean, the Bill Knights of the world and whatever are Bob, Bobby Knight. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Bobby Knight um, did use a tough approach, but I mean, this is even beyond that. I mean, that's, how does it help the program if your players, I mean, medically can't be out there just because or, of actions like this. Or despise the coaching staff. I mean, how how good can a player be playing for someone he hates, you know? Well, yeah, and that, I don't understand. I mean, it's got to hurt your recruiting if because when they talk to uh, a bunch of former players, I mean, they I mean, just blatantly essentially call the coaches, for a better phrase, you know, assholes. Yeah. Where it's like, I don't. There's not a lot of love from the former players, it seems like. Well, I think one player was quoted as saying, uh, they call it tough love, but it was mostly just tough. <laughs> there, yeah. There was very little love involved. Yeah. they. Uh, like I said, I guess at the beginning of this little segment, I just think they, they sound like pricks. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're surely, I, I can't believe this investigation has taken as long as it has. I figured by Monday morning, everybody would be gone. You know, Durkin, Court, and the training staff, everybody would just be I mean, it's just too easy to fire somebody after someone dies. And it's been, what, a month since the kid's been dead? Well, yeah, and I don't even think, uh, I don't even think the school has, have they even released uh, their investigation yet? I think they're no. still denying that. They're going to take uh, this... two weeks, I think. They said that it might be a two-week investigation, but it should have been a two-day investigation. I mean, come on. Well, yeah, but at this point, their uh, their lawyers are trying to, limit as much liability as they can right. which and they're not in gonna a, be they're not in an ohio state situation where they've got a name like urban meyer that they're firing like this dj durkin you can get rid of this guy it's not really a, a problem whereas you know dismissing urban meyer is going to leave half the state of ohio up in arms yeah exactly um and it's just uh i guess the timing of it uh is going to be tough on the program as well not that i feel bad for the program at all right yeah um, just because you got a game to play you know you got an interim head coach in place you'll figure out how to play football <laughs> it'll happen no I, no and i i understand that but i do feel a little sorry for the other players i mean that sure. you're essentially going to lose a season um, which isn't going to benefit any of those players there'll be a lot of players at the university of north carolina uh missing football games this season as well uh, 13 North Carolina football players, including quarterback Chaz Surratt, were suspended between one and four games for selling school-issued shoes. The selling of the special edition Nike Jordan shoes is a secondary NCAA violation, and UNC self-reported the violation in January. Since these shoes are uniquely manufactured for and distributed solely to UNC athletes, their rareness by his airness can fetch upwards of $600 on eBay, according to Joe Giglio. Meanwhile, the NCAA changed rules to allow elite high school basketball prospects to hire agents and undergraduates to return to school if they enter the NBA draft and aren't selected. How hypocritical is it that a college basketball player can now hire an agent but not profit from his name, signature, or shoes until he signs a contract and doesn't need the money anymore? Oh, I think it's totally hypocritical. (laughs) I mean, we've had numerous discussions on... I mean, it ties into what we were saying before, how, to me, it's essentially slavery. Mm -hmm. Um... And I, I looked at a quote from their coach, that Larry Fedora. Mm-hmm. Let me just quick read it because this guy is a joke. Okay. I'm certainly upset by our players' actions and how their choices reflect on them, our program, and the university. These young men knew the rules and are being held responsible for the poor, poor choices they have made. Accountability is an important core principle in this program. We will learn from this and aim to do better in the future. Yeah, to me, it's... It's a slap in the face to these student athletes who are making these programs so much money. And it's, 
if you've got to sell your shoes, you know, <laughs> to come up with some supplemental income, right? Give me a break to put gas in your car or to you know just pay your tuition. I mean, do they do these coaches and NCAA administrators not understand that you know the majority of people even under scholarship incur costs while attending university? Like it's not something just because you've got a food uh, stipend and a and a housing stipend and all of your tuition paid for. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not spending money. I mean, you still got to put clothes on your back. You still got to transport yourself to where you need to be. Uh, there are costs incurred in college that people don't consider. As long as you're getting room and board and tuition paid for, they think you're getting a free ride. It's far from a free ride. There's nothing free about it. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at your own expenses in your life, I mean, there's a lot more than rent or your housing payment that you pay for. I mean, cost of living isn't just tied to putting the roof over your head. And I mean, when you look at regular students in college, a lot of whom, you know, college takes up enough of their time where they can't work. Mm-hmm. These college athletes, they don't have much time, I mean, available. Right. They couldn't learn any of, living guess, if they wanted to. Exactly. Because of the rigor- rigorous schedule that they're put under. Yeah, um, they're so. Working 40 hours a week for a football team that's not, or a basketball team or whatever, that's not paying them. You know, it, it's a full-time exactly, job being they, a student athlete. <laughs> But that program's making a lot of money, though, um, which I something's got to be done uh, in college sports to divvy up the amount of money being made um, to these athletes. Because, I mean, it's really unfortunate for those athletes who, you know, don't go on to the next level yeah. or, heaven forbid, get hurt in college. Right. And, it's, I mean, it's they're getting no reward for, yeah. uh, I guess, their labor. Well, it's long been said that uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law, Mike. But these benefits for attending UNC don't seem very beneficial. I mean, the NCAA has managed to make a benefit a burden for these student-athletes. So what kind of possession is this if you can't sell what you possess? It sounds to me like they're leasing out these shoes to these kids, (laughs) and it's it's a joke. That's my thing. It's their property. Let them do with their property how they see fit. Um, so I don't understand how this is a violation. Um, I, I'm just, I guess, dumbfounded. Um, yeah, it's... You're, given, you're given something and you can't do with that property what you want to, yeah. I guess. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Well, that said, we will take a short break and be back with a little fun segment uh, with statistically significant foul play and historically foul play right after this. Welcome back to Foul Play by Play, the podcast that brings you the week's cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports. If you're new to the show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Android via email at foulplaybyplay.com or simply press play at foulplaybyplay.com. You can also get in touch with the show at Foul Play by Play on Twitter and at our Foul Play by Play Facebook page if you have evidence of foul play in sports you'd like the court to consider. It's time for Historically Foul Play, when we go back in time and examine foul play of the past, when DNA evidence made nothing evident because DNA hadn't been discovered yet. On August 9th, 1905, Ty Cobb's mother, Amanda Cobb, was arrested on charges of voluntary manslaughter in the shooting death of Cobb's father, William Herschel Cobb. Amanda said she thought her husband was an intruder trying to enter their bedroom window when she shot him twice. But there had been rumors in town that William suspected his wife of infidelity and had unexpectedly returned home late that evening when she believed him to be out of town. Cobb would make his Major League debut three weeks later, appearing in 41 games and hitting just 240 with a 588 OPS at the age of 18. It was the only season Cobb would hit below 300 in his 24-year career. 
His mother was ultimately acquitted in 1906, and in 1907, Cobb went on to lead the majors in hits, runs batted in, stolen bases, batting average, slugging percentage, OPS, obviously OPS plus, and total bases. Seems that was a big weight off of Cobb's shoulders, eh, Mike? Yeah, talk about uh, having to play a season through uh, some turbulent times, I guess, or family issues. Um, I think Ty Cobb played every season through turbulent times the way uh, that he lived his life. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, God, to have your mom kill your dad in that fashion? <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened to another athlete that I, I know of. Yeah, talk about getting a surprise uh, trying to catch your partner. <laughs> oh, man. Very unfortunate. But let's get statistical and make some informed inferences in a segment we call Statistically Significant Foul Play, where we do an analysis of statistics indicative of foul play. Foul play-by-play, play, its hosts nor its partners practice nor condone the accusatory promulgation of foul play by athletes for the sake of the hot take. Cheats are innocent until proven guilty. That's it. In this case of statistically significant foul play, I'd like to admit into evidence the following significant statistics indicating foul play. Amongst the top 10 players in Major League Baseball when it comes to being hit by pitches, the Tampa Bay Rays have three, including the lead leaguer Carlos Gomez with 18. C.J. Crone has been plunked 14 times, and Daniel Robinson has taken 13 for the team. The Rays' 74 hit batters is 7 more than the second-place Texas Rangers and 51 more than the last-place Minnesota Twins. Your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, well, this, I mean, Carlos Gomez doing what he does. I mean, he's notorious for crowding the plate. Um, the he's... Rangers are probably still being first with this stat if they would have kept Gomez. I mean, Gomez led the league last year as well with hit-by-pitch, but... I mean, if you look at Gomez's stats this year, I mean, I can't blame him. At least he's getting on base. I mean, the rest of his game offensively is pretty poor. Um, I think he's batting 220 this year. So, I mean, it's... I wonder if I, it, props. I wonder if it has anything to do with Gomez's attitude, too, because he's not one of the most liked players in the league, either. Yeah. Speaking of, well, and Gomez's antics, too, um, did you see... Um, I just did a brief Google search for Gomez, you know, hit by pitch. Did you see the flop he had against the White Sox? Yeah, I did. It was fantastic. Where yeah, Carlos Rodon hit him. That's yeah, the funniest thing I've seen in a while. Yeah, it, it it was like a baby when it when a baby hits his head or something, and uh, it takes about a second for them to realize that it hurts. That that's kind of what I saw with Gomez. There it was a big, big baby just kind of taking its the second it takes for the brain to process the pain. Well, yeah, and especially because he'd already taken, like, the first step across the plate, and I think that was when he was like, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> he just flops to the ground and starts smiling. I've always loved watching that guy play. Oh, yeah. I kind of miss him. I mean, when he was with the Twins, I remember him scoring that winning run that uh, in Game 163, I think, that put him in the playoffs. I, boy, it sure seems like the Twins need to crowd the plate a little bit more, though, don't you think? Oh, yeah, just to find it. Well, not, not that it matters this year now. Um but 23 hit batters in an entire, in you know, three quarters of a season? That's that's ridiculous. Well, no, and I've screamed at the television screen more than once um, in close games where you'll get uh, inside pitch in a very, you know, important, like in the seventh inning, and it's just get on base. Yeah. I mean, it's, especially when it's coming to the lower half of your body, if you can take that in the back or the buttocks, it's not going to hurt that much. Right. Yeah, and Gomez has got a <laughs> not to not to talk too much about Gomez's buttocks, but he's got a lot of meat in there to have the uh, the pain kind of get absorbed. 
Well, I'm not calling the defendants cheats. I'm just saying that the statistics are significant indicators of foul play. I trust the jurors will make the right decision and find the defendant guilty of foul play given the evidence. I rest my case. And we'll be back with more headlines right after this. Welcome back to Foul Play by Play. It's the show that brings you the week's cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports. I'm Anthony, your host. I'm joined by my attorney, Michael Haas. Say hello to the people, Mike. Hello, people. And we're going to do some more headlines. Former All-Star pitcher Esteban Loaiza pleaded guilty Friday to federal drug charges in California. Loaiza acknowledged that he possessed about 44 pounds, that's 20 kilos of cocaine, with the intent to distribute. He faces 10 years to life in prison when he's sentenced on November 2nd. Can we expect Loaiza to be granted leniency in this case, since California prisons are still operating above capacity and at increased rates due to health care costs, Mike? No. No? <laughs> that's a pretty straight answer. Well, no, and as uh, I think if you ask any defense attorney or somebody, well, yeah, defense attorney who does criminal defense, it, when you're looking at federal drug charges, it's all about the weight. So, I mean, he's looking at that mandatory 10 years in jail, um, and it's nearly impossible to get around that on the federal level. But we can assume that he'd probably get lean towards the minimum than the maximum. Oh, yes. I mean, with our overcrowded prisons, but yeah. still 10 years is... That's a lot of time. And under the federal system, um, it's a lot different than the state laws when it comes to probation and parole eligibility. I mean, you generally do close to your full time. So if a judge gives you 10 years, you're likely going to do the full 10. And he wouldn't necessarily have to serve it in a California prison, would he? Well, no, it would just be a federal. They could ship him to whatever federal right. prison they'd want to. Okay. It might be difficult to imagine what would possess a man who made more than $43 million in Major League Baseball to risk his life trafficking cocaine, but Loiza's personal life is riddled with red flags. Uh, while few might remember Loiza starting the 2003 MLB All-Star Game, which was basically the height of his MLB career, Loiza became a celebrity in Mexico after marrying Mexican-American singer Jenny Rivera in 2010. You ever heard any of her music, Mike? I have not, sadly. Well, the relationship likely granted Loaiza access to some of the most exclusive parties in Mexico and allowing him to experiment with drugs and meet some people with power in Mexico, I'd imagine. Uh, those new relationships, both with the drugs and the drug dealers, likely persisted upon his wife filing for divorce in 2012 and then dying in a plane crash shortly after. As an addict myself and someone who thinks we're all addicts in some form, whether it be to drugs, alcohol, donuts, or God, I can say with conviction that hard times make habits harder to break. For some people, it takes conviction to break those habits. What's your experience with drug cases you've worked and the client's responses to being convicted, Mike? Do they shape up more often than they ship out? You know, I think it's really a case-by-case -case and person-by-person -person results. Some people, uh, well, and it's tough because <laughs> the phrase I want to say is, you know, you know, correct their ways or whatever when it's, I don't, I guess, look are frown upon, I guess, drug use, as right. the society does. I don't think it should be criminalized in this fashion. Right. Um, but, I mean, some of them, the few, some of them turn their life around, I guess, and never uh, get into trouble again. A lot of people turn out to be repeat offenders because we're dealing with addiction and a system that just tries to cure things with prison. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go into prison, you come out, it's, nothing's changed, um, except the fact that you can't get a job now because you're a felon, so it's... Right, and the whole time you were in prison, you were only thinking about doing the drugs that you couldn't do while you were there. Well, God, that's all that's left to you when you get out. Right. I mean, <laughs> I mean the only support system you have when you, upon leaving prison is the one you had going into prison and the one you made in prison. I mean, 
treating uh, drug addiction with imprisonment is just, uh, it's nonsense. It's just, it's... Oh, yeah. I think uh, I don't even need to carry on that anymore. No. So, uh, it's nonsensical. So what kind of sentence should Loiza receive if the court has his best interests and the best interests of the state in mind? As I kind of said, I mean, the judge's hands are kind of tied. Um, the laws changed, I believe, back in the... I think it was in the 90s we rechanged uh, our sentencing guidelines for drugs, and it, the judge can sentence you to a lot more, but their hands are really tied when it comes to those minimums. Right. Um, yeah. They can't get around them. Uh, speaking of treatment, <laughs> NASCAR, the sport of driving, had its CEO arrested for driving while intoxicated and possession of oxycodone without a prescription. Brian France, grandson of NASCAR founder William France, was arrested at 7.30 p.m. last Sunday for failing to stop at a stop sign. France was arraigned Monday morning and released on his own recognizance, having been charged with aggravated driving while intoxicated, a felony, and criminal possession of controlled substance, a misdemeanor. The felony charge is a result of France having a blood alcohol content of 0.18% or higher while behind the wheel in New York. Uh, felony usually requires forfeiture of a driver's license for a time, right, Mike? Uh, yes, and as your attorney, um, I did want to correct, I looked up the DUI laws on the great state of New York, I don't believe an aggravated driving while intoxicated is a felony. I think it's just a gross misdemeanor out there. Oh. Uh, because it doesn't carry more than a year uh, jail sentence possible. Not that this guy's going to see any yeah. jail time. Right. Um, but, yeah, your license is revoked for a year. Um, but you can get around that in many fashions, which I'm, I'm assuming his will. attorney is advised him. Yeah, I mean, as, uh, he, he needs to get himself to work, and I guess they work all over the world. I mean, he'll get, uh, when you've got that much money, I mean, the punishments aren't going to be bad. Yeah. Well, he could be suspended and required to complete a recovery program or be subject to drug testing under NASCAR's substance abuse policy. Uh, his uncle Jim has taken over the duties of CEO during his leave of absence. And this isn't the first time Brian Francis has been accused of foul play. Twelve years ago, the Associated Press reported that a witness saw a silver Lexus owned by France traveling at a very reckless speed into a tree near his residence. And the driver, quote, fell over his own feet while exiting the car. France was never charged as a result, but the incident did lead to the requirement that the highest-ranking supervisor on duty must be called to the scene of all DUI incidents and that no officer would report off-duty until his or her reports are complete, according to Auto Week. Uh, France has also been accused of checking into a Betty Ford clinic for drug rehab by Jack Flowers in his book, The Dirt Under the Asphalt, An Underground History of Stock Car Racing. Uh, so how big a blow is this for NASCAR, given its struggle to fill the stands lately? And should this motivate the France family to sell NASCAR, despite their unwillingness to do so? I don't think this will be a blow to NASCAR, really, at all. I mean, I think the issues of filling the seats are a lot of other issues that this won't affect it. I mean, they've lost a lot of big-name drivers, and also, right. I mean, it's just, it's tough. NASCAR's kind of had the same problem that baseball had for a while with getting younger viewers, you know, it's... Yeah, there was, uh, they talked to former drivers, uh, like Petty and I think Gordon, and uh, some of them said that the, the racing has to be more exciting, you know, it, there's, <laughs> apparently turning left just isn't getting it done for uh, fans anymore. Well, and it's, I mean, it's one of those tough things. It's, I mean, we've had this discussion, like, with safety and football and whatnot, when you talk about helmets, I mean, they've made the races safer with restrictor plates and whatnot, but what that does is it slows the cars down, right. so it's, you're not getting as many accidents, and the slower race, which 
sad to say, I mean, American culture likes our cars to go fast. We love to see those dangerous wrecks and whatnot. So it's, I think when they made the sport safer, it's kind of costing the sport as well. Is there a problem with a lack of wild cards in NASCAR? Like just trickle, the Tom Cruise's character, the guy that you know will pass eight eight guys in one lap. Uh, that stuff isn't happening in NASCAR. People don't drive like that in NASCAR, do they? <laughs> yeah, and that's a movie. I mean, that'd be. Uh, I I actually don't mind uh, NASCAR. I used to kind of be into it a couple years ago, and uh, you're talking, you know, four hundred laps. 600 lap races. Oh, it's grueling. Yeah, it's an endurance uh, race. And I'm not just saying that to kind of be nice in NASCAR. Those guys get out of those cars and can hardly move. They they can hardly breathe. They've got black all over their face from exhaust, I imagine, or oil going into the car. It's it's not an easy thing to do. So, no, and, and that's the thing. It's I mean, I love the movie Days of Thunder, but to, like, appreciate the race, it is. I mean, you're getting excited over small things about, you know, uh, when you're choosing to take a pit stop right, and stuff like that, where you're making slow games or slow gains over, you know, a four to five hour race. Right. So it, I mean, it's still exciting to watch, but it's not, uh, it's not F1. Definitely not like the movies, but with Cole trickle though, there are, you will see cases where drivers will kind of take the race into their own hands where they, I mean, will purposely wreck another driver or something like that because of something the driver did so oh sure yeah well hey, we had, uh, what tony stewart didn't he kill a guy in a uh, truck race one time yes that was a couple years ago um <sighs> but yeah that was uh that was a pretty deal, uh, big deal for nascar with, yeah nascar uh, managed to survive that and he retired uh, relatively unscathed i think i mean i don't remember him ever being charged with a crime or at least being convicted of one no, I think that was resolved civilly, um, and it's one of those sports where that's kind of the inherent risk every time you get out on the track. Yeah, yeah. Don't get out of your car. That, that's that would be a good place to start. Yeah, that was horrible. I think I watched that video. Oh um, man, I did too many times. It was uh, it wasn't a great video, but boy, you didn't have to be great to let you know that the the vehicle was moving all fast enough to damn near take someone's head off. Oh yeah. Well, since we're on the topic of vehicles, we'll talk uh, getaway drivers. Uh, Louisiana State University suspended sophomore linebacker Tyler Taylor indefinitely after being arrested for allegedly serving as getaway driver in a January burglary of a pawn shop. A month-long investigation resulted in Taylor's arrest on May 31st. He was charged with felony conspiracy to commit a crime, felony party to a crime, and felony theft. He was released on $33,550 bond, which is a very odd bond amount. Um, and obviously too high. Taylor's cell phone records indicated that he was at the pawn shop the morning of the burglary. Another person arrested for the burglary gave him up, and Taylor's mother apparently owns the getaway truck he was driving. Police also have surveillance footage of the burglary, so Taylor needs a legal miracle. Uh, So what kind of potential plea deal or sentence would allow Taylor to play football again, if not this season someday, Mike? Well, he's going to... I would think he would have to get some kind of a deferred sentence or something... Uh, to try to keep the felony off his record. Right. Um, that being said, then, I mean, the ability to play football, I mean, these are private institutions, so it's going to have to be finding a school that would, I guess, take that gamble on a player that's been in this kind of trouble. So I think it's it's really going to de- be dependent on if he can find a school that will work with him. You can't avoid jail time on, a, on something like this, given the charges that he's, he's charged with. Oh, yeah, you can. Really? Um, yes, yeah, it just... It, 
it's a lot more difficult down south like that uh, for charges like this. I mean, if he's convicted, he would likely do some prison time, but there are ways uh, to get around that jail time um, depending on his criminal history. Right. If he doesn't um, have one, he's he's and there's a chance that he could get this all down to one charge of maybe uh, felony theft and uh, do a year or two of probation maybe. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, he's going to have to find a school that'll work with him because I don't know his, I guess, financial situation, but if he's got that felony on his record, it's going to be impossible for him to get any kind of student loans or anything, so he would need some school to take a gamble on him and, you know, cover his tuition. Mm -hmm. Well, that wraps up the university scandals for the week. Uh, We'll be right back with a little fun segment about uh, foul play in sports films. Welcome back to Foul Play by Play. It's the show that gives you the week's cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports. Uh, this segment, Mike and I have done a little fun listing. Uh, we've ranked films featuring both foul play and sports, uh, with the highest ranked <coughs> film featuring the most foul play in a film featuring sports. Uh, these aren't sports movies, so to speak. They're just movies that feature sports and foul play. So, for instance, the Matt Damon trifecta would be at number three, Goodwill Hunting, in which Matt Damon and the late great Robin Williams reenact Carlton Fisk's home run in game six of the 1975 World Series in Robin Williams' office. The foul play, of course, is Will Hunting assaulting a police officer, with the most foul play being Will's pushing away of Skyler, his girlfriend. Number two would be Stuck on You, in which Damon's Bob Tenner and Greg Kinnear's Walt Tenner play goalie in an adult hockey league as conjoined twins. They're also a good golfer and caddy combo, a switch-pitching pitcher in baseball, a terror in the boxing ring, and not bad on the tennis court either. They're also Martha's Vineyard legends for their high school football legacies. The foul play in this one is Bob's DUI resulting from Greg's excessive drinking in order to convince his brother to have surgery to separate them. And number one on the list would be the Rainmaker, in which a softball bat is the preferred weapon of Kelly Riker's abusive husband, whom Damon kills with said bat in self-defense. So what's your list, Mike? Well, you know, I kind of screwed up because mine are sports movies. Oh, um, that's okay. Okay. So, I mean, I'll fix that the next time we do it. But number one on my list uh, is Blue Chips. Of course. Where you've got the foul play, and that would be, you know, paying athletes with cars and homes to get them to come to the program. Um, and then also you've got player shaving points to fix right. the spread and whatnot. And that, uh, I just love Nolte's speech at the end of that movie. I mean, I'm not the... It is fantastic. Sports, uh, movie fan, but uh, God, that speech was great, and it lives on um, to this day. I mean, especially with all the university scandals we've had in the news lately. Oh God, I would love to see a coach actually take responsibility like that. Though. Oh, it'd be fantastic. It would be really heartwarming. <laughs> oh yeah, no, just the whole. You know, I'm a big part of the problem. Blah blah blah. Great speech. Great speech. Um, my second movie I picked was Major League probably the best, well, in my opinion, the best baseball movie of all time. I agree. Um, and uh, the foul play in that one is you've got that owner who's essentially, <laughs> I call it, pulling a Miami Marlins right. on that team, on the Indians. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, trying to move the team to Miami, for Christ's sake. I know. That's <laughs> what, so, uh, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, so you've got that foul play, and then you've got the assault at the end of where Dorn punches Vaughn in the face after they win. Right, um, yeah. Um, and then my third and final movie for this week is I pick Sandlot. Um, you've Sandlot. got small stealing, so you've got theft. That's the whole play. Uh, the Babe Ruth <laughs> signed baseball. That's right, yeah. What he calls Baby Ruth. I love that scene. Um, 
you've got multiple instances of trespassing slash borderline burglary um, <laughs> of uh, the yard they're trying to get the ball from. Yeah. Then my favorite foul play is uh, done by squints, which I think qualifies as sexual assault. Right, of course, where, except he's a minor. <laughs> yeah, where he uh, fakes drowning so he can kiss the hot lifeguard, um, which I know a couple prosecutors probably would have charged him. And apparently it worked out for him because they had, like, double-digit kids, according to the story. Well, in that case, sexual assault paid off well for him. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know that uh, if you spoke to uh, the uh, men who are been, have been accused in the Me Too movement, uh, they'd probably tell you that sexual assault's paid off, too, because they've all got relatively large bank accounts, and none of them seem to be hurting too badly from paying these these settlements. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, my top three films are just uh, films that have links to sports, although number three on my list I would call a sports movie, The Naked Gun, where uh, Ricardo Montalban brainwashes a baseball player to assassinate Queen Elizabeth II, but Leslie Nielsen goes undercover as an umpire with a generous strike zone and emphatic third strike calls to get his man. Uh, number two is A Few Good Men. Uh, this is another baseball bat. Uh, instance where Tom Cruise thinks better with his bat, and he also plays softball while negotiating a plea deal with Kevin Bacon, which is fantastic. Uh, could you do that, Mike? <laughs> Use a baseball bat to negotiate? No. Could you play? Could you could you run a, a softball practice while negotiating a plea deal? Oh heck yeah, you could. <laughs> uh, of course, the most foul play in that movie is Jack Nicholson covering up his involvement in the death of a Marine because uh, he ordered the code red. They couldn't handle the truth, Tony. No, they couldn't. And number one on the list is another sports movie, and I think this one's almost obvious. Number one is The Fan, uh, where a San Francisco Giants superfan played by Robert De Niro is thrilled to have Wesley Snipes join the team, uh, but his early performance leaves much to be desired. So The Fan solves the problem by murdering the Giants player wearing Snipes' lucky number 11. And while stalking Snipes, De Niro saves his son from drowning, only to kidnap him, hold him hostage, until he gets some appreciation, despite Snipes being unaware of the fans' criminal contributions. Fantastic film. Yeah, that's a great choice. Well, we thank you for joining us on this uh, edition of Foul Play by Play. Uh, Join us next week, where hopefully we'll have some more cheats, so we can bring you some cheats of the week. Uh, We'll certainly have more university scandals, I imagine. Uh, but keep tuning in. Uh, you can find us at foulplaybyplay.com and on Twitter at foulplaybyplay. And we will talk to you next week.